Hi, my name is David. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our, our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 28, verses 28 through 31. Therefore be certain of this. God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul lived in his own rented quarters for two full years and welcomed everyone who came to see him. Unhindered and with complete confidence, he continued to preach God's kingdom and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Rick. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word to us today. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes so that like Simeon, we would see the glory of the Lord, see the salvation of the Lord. We pray for that today in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent tomorrow is indeed Christmas Eve, which then begins 12 days of Christmas, a great feast and cookies and pie and all of that wonderful stuff. So enjoy all of that 12 days long. You have permission officially here from your church. There you go. Uh, during the season of Advent, we've been, we've been working our way through four songs in Luke's gospel, and we've called them songs of expectation, and these are uh, songs that give us a little bit of a clue of what it's like to live in this in-between. Uh, you see, Advent is not just a time when we remember the birth of Christ, but also a time when we look forward to the second coming of Christ. In fact, many of the songs even that we sing around this time of year, and not all of them were written with the incarnation or the nativity in mind, but actually some 
some of them were written with the second coming in mind. We sang this morning, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts wrote that about the second coming of Jesus. And so when you think about Advent and these songs in this season, uh, it's meant to kind of stir our hearts to prepare the way of the Lord, prepare our own hearts to meet of King Jesus, but also a time of expectation where we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, the first song we looked at was the song of Mary, and there's a, each of these songs became um, a part of early Christian worship. And so then as, as Christianity became part of uh, the Roman Empire, it began to get, each of these songs began to get fancy Latin names. You know, and so Mary's song is called the Magnificat, and then the song of Zechariah is called the Benedictus, the Blessed are you, Lord God Almighty, and then the angel's song that one's easy that's the Gloria, you know, and now this is the fourth song, the song of Simeon, which we're going to be talking about today, and that's called the Nunc Dimittis. Now, I don't know how to pronounce it, but nobody speaks Latin really anyway, so it doesn't matter. But you can just use this at your Christmas Eve parties tomorrow and whatever uh, when you get with people, the Nunc Dimittis. Now, it li- literally, what it means is now dismiss. You can dismiss me. I'm done. I've seen it all. I can go now. And it's such an odd way to begin the song. It's of the four songs, it's the one that doesn't contain a direct praise toward God. It's Simeon saying, the way he addresses God is not with praise uh, in an explicit way, but just just saying, okay, God, I'm done. I've seen it. This is enough. I can go now. You can dismiss me now. And as I was thinking about this, I started to think about uh, great moments in sports history. Now, I, I'm a sports fan, and I just started to think of those moments when a certain athlete steps onto the court or the field, and, and everyone in the arena knows, uh-oh, ball game. It's over. Okay, the, the one I think about, uh, in 1997, the Chicago Bulls are playing the Utah Jazz. It's game five, and everybody knows Michael Jordan has the flu. In fact, he's so sick he can't get out of bed in his hotel room. Tip-off game time is 7 p.m. At 5.50, Jordan rolls out of bed. This is how the legend goes, you know. Rolls out of bed at 5.50, suits up, makes his way to the arena. And can you imagine the gasp when Jordan shows up? And there's these iconic clips of, of Jordan going to the bench after the game and Scotty Pippen next to him putting the towel over Jordan's head. He can be shaking. And yet in that game, Jordan drops 38 points, 15 of them in the fourth quarter. The Bulls win. They go on to become NBA champs. Do you remember that? And you imagine the moment when he steps onto the court is when people say, uh-oh, ball game. It's over. I think another moment, just one more. This one's a baseball example. It's really for Jason's benefit. He's a big baseball guy. In 2004, when the Boston Red Sox were down to the New York Yankees, and Kurt Schilling comes up to pitch, and you remember he's torn his tendon, and the doctors have tried to stitch him up, but it keeps popping open. It's kind of gross. Sorry, there's kids in the room. But his white sock bleeds red for the Red Sox. I mean, can it get, can there be a better sports story? And then they come back, I think they were down 3-1 or something crazy like that. And Schillings, the way he pitched that game, turned the series around. They went on to the World Series, broke the curse of the Bambino and the Red Sox. I'm not even a Red Sox fan. I'm not even a baseball fan. And it's a great sports moment, right? (laughs) Oh, huzzah, huzzah. And, and, and you realize that these are, there are these moments in sports where someone steps on the field or on the court and you realize, ah, oh, ball game, game over. I think that's what's going on here is when Simeon sees baby Jesus, he realizes oh, God just called ball game. God just said game over. 
game over to the enemies. Now listen to this in, in verse 25 of, of Luke 2. The way that Luke sets up the story, he says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now we have some kids in the room, so we're going to do a little bit of interaction this morning. Uh, say with me, consolation of Israel. Now, one of the reasons I wanted you to say that is because you've probably never said that phrase before. Okay, so if you've been around church, this isn't usually the one that makes a flannel graph. You know, we don't know, what is this phrase? This is a weird phrase. Now, later on in the song, Simeon is going to say, I've seen your salvation. And I want to say to you today, if we don't get the consolation of Israel thing right, we'll get salvation wrong. We'll start to fill it in with our own understanding. Oh, well, this is what salvation means. But Luke backs it up. He gives us a, a phrase here that actually cues a whole story. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then verse 26, he says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, this is another unusual phrase. Say it with me, the Lord's Christ. We, we, again, a phrase that we don't typically use. But what Simeon is saying is the Lord is a reference to Yahweh, the great sovereign one. And Christ was a title. He's, Christ, you know this, was not Jesus' last name, right? His parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ with little baby Jesus Christ. Christ was a title. It's the Greek translation of that Hebrew word, Messiah. It is the anointed one. So when Simeon says, the Spirit revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, this is what we're meant to put together. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and he's waiting to see Yahweh's chosen one, the Lord's anointed. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let's unpack it. There are many different Old Testament scriptures that can help us fill in the meaning here, but most of them are found in Isaiah. And maybe the best, most compact place in Isaiah is that great text that Handel set as his opening piece of the Messiah. Anyone listen to Handel's Messiah this time of year, right? Comfort ye. And he goes on, and I will not go on, but, but Isaiah goes on. And he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem right off the bat. You wonder, is this what Simeon had in mind? The consolation of Israel? Is he thinking about Isaiah's old song? Comfort, consolation. Is this what Simeon has in his heart? And he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, Isaiah says. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. No more enemies. No more being beaten down and oppressed, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Isn't that what Simeon sang? Didn't he say this will be a glory for Israel and all flesh shall see it together? Didn't Simeon say you've prepared salvation in the sight of all people? Isaiah was saying this before, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now to list this out, to break this out, we might say something like this. The consolation of Israel meant at least these four things. And we just want to set this, the stage here. It means at the very least rescue from enemies. No more. Her warfare has ended. 
And so there's a sense in which the great hope of Israel in the Old Testament was not just that we'd be rescued from our enemies, but that our enemies would be gone. It'd be real great if they could go ahead and be vanquished. And then there was a return from exile. Exile in the Old Testament was a symbol of the Lord's judgment and a reminder of Israel's unfaithfulness. Now, I know this is not a great illustration. So if you're an Old Testament theology guy, don't at me. Don't come at me with this, okay? But again, there's kids in the room. Maybe this is a little bit like being in a timeout. And you know when timeout is over, you're like, okay, I've learned my lesson now. I've thought about what I've done. Mom and dad have forgiven me now. Time out, not a perfect analogy, but that's a little bit like this. Their hope was when exile is over, that's how we know we've been forgiven. When exile is over, that's how we know we've been forgiven. And then they were hoping for the restoration of the glory of the Lord. They want, their temple had been destroyed. Their place of worship had been torn down. And they're like, God, would your presence come back to the land, come back to the temple? And then finally, there was a sense in which Israel was waiting for the renewal of their vocation. What I mean by that is Israel was called to do something in the world. They were called to be a light to the Gentiles in the world. They were, they were called to, to be on God's mission. And their sin had derailed it. And part of the hope was, God, will you rescue us from our enemies? Would you bring us back to the land? Would you let your glory fill the temple? And would you let us know if the plan and the call on our life is still on? That's what they wondered. Now, there's much, many more things you can say, but we have to catch this at the very least if we're going to understand what salvation means. And so then when the story goes on, in verse 27, it says that Simeon came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do uh, for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Here Simeon is saying that consolation of Israel thing, that whole Messiah Christ thing, I'm seeing it, and I'm going to use one word for it, and the word is salvation. And so this morning, I want to say three things about salvation, and the first is going to be the densest, the, the thickest. The first is this. Salvation is the rescue from sin and death. Salvation is the return home to our Father. Salvation is the restoration of God's presence with us, and salvation is the renewal of our calling. Now, this may sound overwhelming and massive, but here's why it matters. If you lose the whole story and you just fill in the blanks a little bit and say, oh, salvation is that we go to heaven when we die. It's not that that's not true. It's that you've plucked it out of the whole story and now it can easily be distorted. Have you ever seen that meme that floats around the internet usually by if you have non-believing friends that they'd be the ones to share it and it's a picture of like European Jesus knocking on the door and says behold I stand at the door and knock and then at the bottom it says and if you don't let me in I'm going to send you to hell <laughs> nervous laughter you know <laughs> this is the impression that people have of what the gospel is when we lose the whole story of what salvation is and we make salvation about this sort of random thing of, yeah, yeah, God's going to let us go to heaven when we die instead of going to that other place, and then this is the salvation message, people are right to push back against us. The unbelieving world is right to say, you're crazy. 
Like that's like an, a, a, either some sort of megalomaniac God, some sort of egomaniac who will send everyone to hell who doesn't want him. And so no, no thanks. I don't need your salvation because I actually don't believe in your God. And you know what we should say as Christians? You know what? I don't believe in that God either. But I do believe in the God who's come to rescue us from the power of sin and death. I do believe in the God who's come to return us to the Father, to the place where we belong. I mean, isn't that good news to a group of people, to a culture that is feeling alone and lost and not sure of where we belong or where our identity comes from, to say to you, we believe in a God who wants to return you home again to the Father. We believe in a God who wants to restore his presence with us so that every day when we wake up, it's not just, oh, thank you, God, that one day when I die, I'll go to heaven, but it's thank you, God, that even now you are with me, that you fill me. We believe in the God who is all about renewing our calling so that whether you're retired or whether you work or whether you're in the arts or you're a student, you can say, each day I wake up with the call to go and reflect the image of God into the world. That's the God that we believe in. And that's what salvation is. Yes, it's true. There's a piece about heaven and forgive. Of course, yes. But don't yank it out of the story. If you, if you, if you pull it out of the story, you're going to distort it. And this is why Luke wants us to see this thing that God is doing in Jesus didn't arrive randomly. It didn't emerge out of nowhere. It didn't just get plopped into some, you know, pin on the planet. It, instead, it emerges out of a whole story of God at work in his world. Salvation is the rescue from sin and death, the return home to the Father, the restoration of God's presence, and the renewal of our calling. Amen? Amen. And then as Simeon goes on in verse 30, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Somebody say, all peoples. All peoples. Everyone, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, it is significant that Simeon names both Gentiles and Israel. Because if you were a Jew in the first century, you were ready for God to come and fix stuff and defeat enemies and rescue you. You were ready for that. What you were not ready for is for God to also forgive other people. And for God to also provide salvation for others. You'd be like, whoa, whoa, now hang on. Not those, but those people are lawless. Don't want your salvation to come to them. And Simeon says, no, 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 it's for everyone. This is the second thing I want to say. Salvation is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's designed to reach to the lowest place, to the farthest place. It's designed to go out to the heights and down to the depths. Salvation is for everyone. Now, when we hear this, we typically have one of two responses. On the one hand, you say, well, I mean, that's nice, Glenn, but I think what you mean is it's for the people who've done, like, kind of bad things. You know, like, the people who, like, maybe were, you know, fudged a few numbers on their taxes, or maybe the person who, who you know, d- didn't quite say this, or maybe the person who, who, who let out a, a, a foul word when they were angry. I mean, but it's not really for me, because you don't know what I've done, and you don't know the depths that has come to me. You don't mean salvation has come for me. And Luke will spend the rest of his gospel showing us just how extreme this is. He'll show Jesus reaching 
to the leper, to the outcast, to the marginalized, to the worst sinner, to the person that society says you don't belong. And Luke wants us to get it in our bones. No, no, I really mean it. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. And then the other response we have is, we might say, no, I'm too far gone. Or we might say, actually, I'm fine. And that's the other response. Is, I don't really need this. I mean, maybe you guys need your sort of religious crutch, you know. I remember years ago, my mom ran a, an English class for these students from China who had come to Malaysia to kind of get their, their university education, and she was teaching. And it was interesting to learn that these students from China who had come from, from some means and from some wealth associated Christianity as a peasant religion. And it was, well, I mean, I guess if you're in the lower class and if you're poor, if you have nothing else to, to lean on, then I suppose this Christianity will do. But not us. We've got our education. We've got our plan. We've got our power. We've got our wealth. We've got our business ideas. Well, that's a little bit like us, isn't it? And so we sort of make these categories. Either we're too far gone or we're, we're really just fine. I mean, we're not that bad. We don't really do those kinds of things. The good news of the gospel <laughs> cuts both ways. It's good news because it says, no, I'll reach even you. And it cuts on the other side because it says, and even you need it. Even you need it. Don't, don't fool yourself. You're not able to rescue and restore and return and renew yourself. At the end of the book of Acts, I just want to pick this up in verse 28. So Luke, you know, the tradition is that Luke writes his gospel, and then Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is sort of his, his volume two. And skip down with me to verse 28, where he's, he says that, therefore, let it be known. And so Paul is preaching, and he's got, he's got kind of this house arrest thing, and then he says, and then Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is Luke's way of kind of bracketing his volume one and volume two. Volume one is, the, is Simeon saying, it's going to go to the Gentiles. And volume two says, it's been sent. It happened. It went out beyond Jerusalem. It went out beyond Israel. It went to the Gentiles. And then, verse 29, he lived, oh, verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, talking about Paul, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, notice what Luke calls Jesus now. He calls him Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning, he called Jesus the Lord's Christ. He's Yahweh's chosen one. Now he says, let's go ahead and say the truth. Jesus is the Lord himself. He's the Lord himself. And this sets us up for the rest of Simeon's words. Verse 33, it says, his mother and his father, talking to Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. Now just pause for a minute and let me make one comment. Just in the previous chapter, the angel told Mary, you're blessed and highly favored. Now Simeon is saying, and a sword will pierce your own soul. Which whatever else it means, at the very least, it also means that being favored doesn't mean being exempt from suffering. And Simeon says to Mary, you are blessed and favored and a sword will pierce your soul. 
And then he says, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon says, this child will cause the fall and the rising of many. Maybe the best way to say this is that everything hinges on what we do with Jesus. Everything hinges, rises or falls, rises or falls on what we do with Jesus. And so the third thing here about salvation is that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Alone. Jesus alone. And this is why it's, to me, it's significant that Luke begins his gospel saying Jesus is the Lord's Christ and then ends it by saying, do you see it now? He is the Lord, Jesus Christ. He himself is the Lord. And this is the good news of the gospel. Are you ready? Jesus is king. Full stop. That's it. You believe that? You get what the king brings. The king brings rescue. The king returns you home. The king restores the presence. The king renews your call. But it all begins when you say, Jesus is king? Yes, I believe that. I'm in with that. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. Everything hinges on what we do with Jesus Christ. Maybe another way to say it is that Jesus himself is the game changer. He's the game changer. And when he steps onto the court of human history, you can switch teams. It's okay. He's made the way. Everyone who, all who want to come, come. Wouldn't it be foolish to say, no, it's fine. I'd rather play against you. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, I, you can come. Come on, join my, I've got a roster spot. Like, mm, all right, I got this. No, don't, don't, don't be on the other side. You could be part of the ones that Jesus causes the falling to happen. Or you could be one of the ones that rising happens because you, you pledged your allegiance to him. Faith, in its most basic sense, yes, it's trust, but maybe something stronger than that is allegiance. And if the gospel announcement in all four of these songs from Mary's song to Zechariah's song to the angel, if the, if the announcement that's common in each of these four songs is that Jesus is king, then faith is when we say, and I surrender my allegiance to him. Amen. I'm with him. Amen. That's not, no question. Some of us have learned a version of Christianity that allows us to mix and match. And so we've said, oh, I like a little Jesus, but I like a little bit of self-interest and greed. I like Jesus, but I also like freedom to sort of live however I please. I mean, don't, don't go talking to me about ethics and what to do. I, I'm not interested. And Simeon says to us, this child will cause the rising or the falling of many. What will you do with Jesus? Will he get your allegiance or will you fall apart? When you flip over to one of the other gospel nativity accounts, you read the story of a king of the Jews named Herod. Now, I think if anyone should have been excited to see the long-awaited king, it should have been Herod. I mean, wouldn't every Jewish king have thought of themselves as really just a placeholder until the great king finally comes? Wouldn't he have been like the steward of Gondor? 
waiting to hand over the throne to Aragorn. Oh, sorry, Lord of the Rings nerds. That was for you. Instead, Herod says, no, this is not good news. And he becomes so threatened that he begins the slaughter of the innocents. You see, when you refuse to give up your throne for King Jesus, you do crazy things. You start to live in protectionist ways. You say, oh, I, can do I can run my life. Don't do this. Don't do that. Herod fell apart. I think he was one of the ones Simeon was thinking of. This child will cause the falling of many. Herod fell apart. But you know who rose? It's the ones who willingly fell down to their knees in worship. The wise men, the shepherds, the ones who willingly say, he's the king? Oh, that's God. Fall to my knees in worship. This morning, I want to invite our worship team to come, and I want us to just ponder this moment right here, to just hold it before the Lord, to say, all right, Jesus, if your salvation really is more expansive, a bigger story than I imagined, I, and I do want that, and, and if it is really true that everyone can get in on this, and that if it is true that all of this rises and falls on what we do with King Jesus, then I don't want to be playing on the other team. And, and frankly, to stretch the metaphor just a teeny bit, I don't just want to be a spectator in the stands either. I want to be on your team. I want to give you my full allegiance and adoration and worship and to say, okay, King Jesus, I'm with you. This Christmas, that can be your song. This can be your song. Not just the song of Mary, said, be it unto me, not just the song of Zechariah who says, blessed be the God of Israel, not just the song of the angels who sang glory to God in the highest, not just the song of Simeon, but it could be your song, the song of John, Susie, the song of each one of you that says, my song is. I've seen the salvation of the Lord. And I bow and I surrender. And this king is worthy of it all. I want to invite you just to sing that chorus, Oh, come, let us adore him. And even before we pray a prayer of confession, even before we hear the words of invitation to the table, I want to invite us to just open our heart wide to King Jesus. Where is he calling for our allegiance today? So let's sing this. Oh, come let us For He alone is worthy. For He.
We'll give you all the glory. We'll give you all the glory.